I'd like you, if you would, turn with me again to Leviticus 23, please. Leviticus 23. And uh, thank you for coming tonight. I realize there's lots of things you could be doing on a Friday evening, so I'm glad you're here. And uh, trust the Lord will encourage you as we look at God's Word together. And um, Leviticus 23, verse 6, it says, On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unto the Lord seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord seven days. The seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. And again, we believe God will bless that reading of his word to us uh, this evening. Uh, We said uh, on um, Wednesday night that um, this feast is really speaking of Christ our sanctification. Christ being made to a sanctification. And the idea is this, that when somebody had come to know Christ as their Passover, what did they do next? Well, there were two things. They fed on Christ, the lamb, if you like. They fed on the lamb, roast with fire. Uh, So they actually uh, feasted on the lamb that had been sacrificed for them. And for a Christian... When we're saved, we feast on the person of the Lord Jesus. And he is precious to us and we enjoy feasting on him. And then secondly, uh, they are to put away leaven, remove leaven from their homes for that seven-day period. And we said that it's really a picture of the Christian life that on the one hand, there's this feeding on Christ. The other hand, there's the removal of evil. Leaven is a picture of of evil in its permeating character. Uh, Just like you put the little bit of yeast into the big batch of dough and it spreads until every part of it is infected by the yeast so is sin it never stays isolated you think uh, I'm just doing this myself it's not going to hurt anybody else that's a lie it affects others sin always affects others and always negatively and so the idea is you remove leaven Uh, You remove evil from your life. And as a Christian, uh, we think of it in these terms. Put on the new man. Put off the old man, right? Put on Christ. Put off the old life and that which pertains to the old life. But we wanted to show you, uh, and we didn't get a chance on Wednesday to complete it, how much this teaching concerning leaven finds its way throughout the New Testament and often used by the Lord himself. So I'd like you to look at some examples with me. Look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. And uh, the Lord Jesus is uh, teaching here and he says, In the meantime, when they were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So here the Lord is saying, here's something that is evil, that has a spreading influence on people, and that is hypocrisy. Uh, the, the Pharisees were hypocritical. And the idea was that the Pharisees um, looked really impressive on the outside. And the Lord would always speak about this, wouldn't he? That, that outwardly they were like whitewashed sepulchres, like tombs that would, had been whitewashed. But inwardly they were full of dead men's bones. 
So they had this idea that if they, if they just looked the part, everything was okay. And it's so subtle, that kind of thinking, isn't it? We can do that too. Uh, certain circles in, in our assemblies where if you wear the right outfit, you carry the right Bible, and you look the part, people think you're spiritual. But inwardly, you could be thinking all kinds of wicked thoughts, right? And so there's that sense of beware of hypocrisy. And we've got examples of it in the scriptures uh, where hypocrisy uh, and this, uh, this externalism um, was very dangerous. Uh, remember the book of Acts in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. What was the issue? They had seen that Barnabas had a field, he sold it, and he presented everything at the feet of the apostles. And everybody was so blessed. In fact, they said, Barnabas, what an encouraging brother. He's the son of encouragement. And so Ananias and Sapphira said, you know, I'd like to get on the act here. And so they also had land. They sold it and they pretended they gave everything, but they kept back some. Now, there's nothing wrong with them keeping back some of it. The problem was not them keeping back some of it. It was their land. They could do whatever they wanted. The problem was they pretended they'd given everything. And they were, well, they were killed. Aren't you glad that the Lord is not dealing with hypocrites the same way today? How many would be here tonight, I wonder? (laughs) You might not have a preacher. (laughs) Because we've all done it at some point, haven't we? Pretended more spirituality than we really have. And he says, look out for this thing, right? Be real. God wants reality. He doesn't want us to be performers, performing an act, looking the part, having the right outfit, all the rest of it, but inwardly far from God. And that's the danger, isn't it? You can be at all the meetings, you can can look the part, but you can be living a double life. And that's the hypocrite, you see? So he says, watch out for that. It's leaven, it spreads, it's dangerous. Um, it, it's, uh, it's play acting. Uh, Matthew 23 and verse 7. Uh, again, just want to see again how the Lord uses this frequently in his teaching. Matthew 23 verse 7. He says, um, sorry, verse 27. Matthew 23 verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. So it's this idea of the outward looks good, but inside uh, the heart is far from where it ought to be. And so it's good to ask ourselves the question tonight, are you the real deal? That's good for all of us to ask, isn't it? Or are we good actors, good performers? We know how to act. In the right circumstances. I heard somebody say one time that um, uh, your reputation is what people think of you. Your character is what you are when nobody's looking. See, it's possible that we have a reputation, but do we have a character? <laughs> what, what are you like when you're on your own and nobody's watching? That's what you really are before God. And that's a challenge to all of us, isn't it? God didn't want us to be hypocrites. Well, let's look at some more of these. Look at uh, Mark 8 now. 
Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, just to see how this, this teaching about leaven permeates the New Testament. And you say, why are we laboring this? Well, the reason we're doing it is we're showing that if you really want to understand your New Testament, the New Testament was not written in a vacuum. All of the authors except Luke were Jews. They cut their teeth on the Old Testament scriptures and it bleeds through as they write it. And so you see this connection between the Testaments. And even the teaching of the Lord Jesus, he was born under the law. He was a Jew. And his teaching had basic uh, foundation in the Old Testament scriptures and particularly the Pentateuch. And so in Luke, uh, sorry, yeah, Mark 8, verse 15, it says, And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. I want you to notice how many times the Pharisees are mentioned. But here it says, And of the leaven of Herod. So now we've got two different things. You've got the leaven of the, the, the Pharisees. We've already thought that was hypocrisy. And now you've got this additional idea of the leaven of Herod. Now Herod was a compromiser. He was trying, on the one hand, to please the worldly and also to please the religious, the Jews and the Romans. And part of it was he wanted to maintain his position, right? And so he, would, he was a pragmatic. He would do whatever it took to keep in power. And so uh, that he was somebody who was a politician, uh, playing a game of political correctness rather than uh, somebody who speaks the truth. And uh, it's very easy, again, for us um, to be Christian politicians. Now, what I mean by that is that um, in preaching, we can preach what people want to hear. So we get invited back. So that people are, you know, you can do that. And don't ruffle any feathers, don't annoy anybody, don't get people mad or anything like that. Just tell them what they want to hear and you'll never lack opportunities. Or you can be God's servant and tell them what they need to hear and you might not get invited back. And so there's that kind of politician uh, tendency that could be in all of us playing a game of political correctness. Uh, And of course, this is going to become a great issue for us in the church today. I just heard about the head of, is it Mozilla? Um, they, they, they do the Firefox, um, all that. Kind. He just lost his job because he's not supportive of gay marriage. And he's said that vocally. And he's gone. He's out of a job. This is the day in which we're living. There's going to be a day, maybe this pulpit may be censored. Are we going to be faithful to God are we going to give in to the leaven of Herod, which is political correctness, because we want that kind of sense of uh, keeping our position, all the rest of it, keep everybody happy in order to maintain our position, tone down things in order to please men and made, maintain our position in their eyes. And that was Herod. Uh, and so he says, watch out for the leaven of Herod. Look at Matthew 16 now. Again, just tracing this theme through the scriptures. And verse uh, 6, Matthew 16, verse 6, he says, Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Here we go again. But they really get it, don't they? Every time the Pharisees are in there. And of the Sadducees. Now, what, what is it about the leaven of the Sadducees? Look at Acts 23 now and verse 8. And of course, I know you've heard this ditty before, but it tells us in 
uh, Acts 23 verse 8 for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection neither angel nor spirit but the Pharisees confess both and you say well the reason that the um, Sadducees were Sadducees is because they didn't have the hope of the resurrection but uh, you would say that the leaven of the Sadducees today by way of practical application is unbelief and modernism denying the fundamentals if you like of the the teaching of scripture they denied the supernatural they didn't believe in angels they didn't believe in resurrection Um, and so uh, you you wonder why would they even bother if you don't believe in the the supernatural why would you even want to be religious it blows my mind that anybody would ever want to be a preacher if you don't have a message you know what I'm saying? Why would anybody want to do that? But I guess there's a prestige. Uh, we knew somebody in Ireland when we were there. He was a Church of Ireland minister. And he didn't believe in anything. And I, I asked him one time because my kids had gone to the school there in Carlo. And I said, why would you do this if you don't believe anything? But I realized pretty soon why he did it. Because he gets invited to all the various events in the city. And he's, he's looked upon with a certain measure of respect in the community. And, and so uh, it's very easy for us to adopt the leaven of the Sadducees and um, where uh, we, we begin to imbibe the humanistic philosophies of the world. The uh, leaven of the Sadducees would be, for instance, to deny the literal six-day creation. That's Sadduceeism, isn't it? Why? Because we want to accommodate to what seems to be scientific fact when even evolution is called a theory to begin with, isn't it? But what are we trying to do? We're trying to make the Bible fit with these theories. That's Sadduceeism. It is sad, isn't it? When when Christians adopt these positions, and um, a lot of this this Sadduceeanism, in the 1800s, it raised its ugly head in the German seminaries, what they called German higher criticism, where men began to deny the supernatural. They sat in judgment upon the word of God. And men that you would be familiar with, like John Nelson Darby and William Kelly, first and foremost were apologists who were arguing against these men. Darby wrote a book, The Irrationality of Infidelity. It's irrational to be an infidel because uh, you're denying the clear revelation of God. And so these men were fighting that in their day, and we're fighting it again in our day, this humanism, this rationalism that's there. But there's a more subtle danger for you and I. I think uh, perhaps in Boulevard it would be fair to say that perhaps all of us, if we're really pinned down, we'd say we believe in the inspired, infallible word of God. I think that would be true of everybody. In, I would hope that would be true in everybody in Boulevard. Our danger, the Sadduceeism danger for us, is just giving mental assent to truth. So in other words, let me say this. I believe the Bible teaches the eternal punishment of the wicked in the lake of fire. I believe it. Do you believe that? But you know what? I often live like it's not true. The last person to be hanged in my home city in Leeds, uh, now they don't do any uh, public executions, and and so the last person to be hanged, uh, the the parson was reading from Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, as he led this man Charlie Peace to the gallows. And Charlie Peace turned around and he said to the clergyman, he said, if I really believe what you just read, he said, I would crawl 
on my hands and knees over England over broken glass to tell one sinner about Christ. An unbeliever said that to him. And so here we are, we say, oh, we believe this, but we live like it's a fairy tale. Don't we? Many of us do. And so we've got to be careful. The Lord is saying to us, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. And then uh, look at Galatians now. We want to look at Paul taking up this same uh, mantra, if you like, of leaven and the danger of leaven. Uh, Galatians 5 verse 9, where speaking, because uh, here uh, it's speaking of false teaching, and particularly the idea of putting people under law, uh, making people submit to circumcision and uh, the various aspects of Judaism. And he says in verse 9, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. In other words, if, if you allow this teaching to come in, it, it's going to affect the whole company of believers. And it is amazing. Uh, you can see in assemblies where false teaching comes in, it, it, it spreads like leaven. And it affects one after another. I was telling somebody today, my son lives in Norway, and he's involved in seeing a, a work started there. But uh, in the 1970s, there were over 100 assemblies in Norway. There's one now. 99 of them went charismatic and are no longer meeting as New Testament assemblies. How do you think that happened? They didn't all just wake up one day and said, hey, you know what, let's become charismatic. A little leaven came in and it didn't stay there. It spread. Can I tell you, there are doctrines today that are infecting assemblies and, and Calvinism would be one. Very dangerous teaching. It's a package. I've seen assemblies torn apart with it. We need to be on our guard today because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so Paul emphasizes the leaven of false doctrine coming in amongst the saints and the impact that it has. And we've got to be careful because it's a lot of books that we buy. We've got to be careful today just because it's an evangelical writer. And maybe he's written some good books on some subjects, but others might be filled with leaven. You need to be careful about what you read because these things affect our thinking. And so we've got to be very careful about these things. And so beware of the leaven of false doctrine. And then look at 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. And uh, we've, we kind of started out here with our New Testament uh, authentication of the importance of um, understanding these Old Testament festivals. But in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6 he says, uh, Your glorying is not good, know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, context here is uh, there's immorality going on. There's a man in the assembly and he's involved in a wrongful relationship. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very serious sin. Uh, it's a, a sin of a sexual nature. And the assembly there failed to deal with it. They did not put this man out of fellowship. Paul writes to them and he says, be careful here. You need to deal with this. If I was there, I would have dealt with it. This man should be put out. You know why? Because he says, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. You see, if this guy gets away scot-free with sexual immorality, you know what everybody else is going to think? Well, if it's okay for brother so-and-so, hey, and he's a well-respected brother, and look what he's doing. 
than I can do because my sin's not as bad as his. You see, the, the idea is this. Discipline is, per, part of the purpose of it is to make all of us fear. Right? It's, it's to have that impact on us. God is holy. The house of God is holy. And sin is serious. And, and, and the elders and the assembly are serious about dealing with sin. Now, we don't discipline people punitively. In fact, 2 Corinthians is, the guys repented, receive him back. Right? We've got to recognize that there's a putting away, but there, if a man, the purpose of it is to bring the man to brokenness and repentance. And when he's there, then you bring him back. And uh, sometimes we have more of a problem with that than we actually do putting away. But in Corinth, they had a problem with putting away uh, somebody who was involved in immorality. And, um, of course, we live in a society um, now where there's such a low moral standard anyway. And, um, uh, you know, to do something like that in our society, it kind of marks you out as strange and weird. What are these people doing? Doesn't everybody do that? But the house of God is meant to be different, isn't it? And, and so we need to be serious about these things. So the leaven of evil conduct. Now look back at Exodus. And I want just to see how serious, uh, seriously they were to take this leaven removal. Exodus 13. In verse 7. Concerning removing leaven from their houses. Book of Exodus uh, chapter 13 verse 7. <clears throat> Well, we, we start in verse 6. He says, Seven days thou shalt eat uh, unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. And then he says, Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread be seen with thee. So what we want to suggest to you is that in this, the principle here of dealing with leaven, first of all, in that time frame of this festival, and remember it's a picture of the Christian life, the first thing he says is, no leavened bread was to be eaten. Right? Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread. Verse 7, unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. So, in other words, uh, you're not to eat of that which is prohibited. You're not to actually indulge, if you like, in that which is prohibited. And again, from our perspective, we're not supposed to be indulging in that which is clearly evil. Right? Don't be involved in it. Don't do it as a Christian. It's not for you. Right? Just like they're not to eat it, we're not to indulge in prohibitive things. And then secondly, uh, it says, uh, again in verse 7, There shall no leavened bread be seen with thee. Not only were they not to eat it, they weren't even to see it. And what they would do is they would go through their houses, and, and they still do this today, they would have a feather and a wooden spoon. And they would sprinkle bits of leaven around the house, and they would go through the house and they would sweep it onto the wooden spoon, just symbolically removing leaven from the house, and then they would burn the feather, the spoon, and the leaven, and they'd be done with it. And so the idea is uh, that perhaps we should search our houses and see, are we allowing leaven in? Are the things in our home that are corrupting? And get rid of them, right? That's what we should do. Uh, because uh, that's the picture here. No leaven, leaven bread was to be seen. And of course, uh, 
as a kid, if you were in Sunday school, uh, you would have sung, Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. And you see, the problem is, what we see leaves a great impression on the database of your mind. And it comes back when you don't want it to. And so we've got to be careful about what we put in to our minds. Be careful that lies what you see. No leavened bread was to be not only uh, eaten, nor to be seen, uh, and, and neither was it to be found in their houses. Again, notice the end of verse 7. Neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. And what he's saying is you can't be too careful with leaven. Search your your homes, search your hearts. What is in your home, your heart, that is having a corrupting influence that's pulling you away from intimacy of communion with God? Now, for the positive side of this feast, we said you feed on Christ, you remove leaven. Back to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And verse 8. Because I, I like the way the Bible always seems to present uh, both sides of the coin. Uh, the, the things that we're to put away and the things that we're to embrace. The, the, the negative and the positive. They're to be brought and held together in balance. So 1 Corinthians uh, 5 and verse 8 he says, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so he says, uh, these are things that should be characteristic of the saints of God. They should be people who are sincere and following truth. So, remember the leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. The unleavened bread of the saint is sincerity. And sincerity, it, it literally has the meaning of judge by the sunlight. And apparently it goes back to a day and age where they made these clay pots, but they were very delicate, and in the process of baking the clay pots, sometimes they would crack uh, in the process, and they would cover them with a wax substance, and what it did is it made it look as if it was the real thing. Until you held it up to the sunlight. And then you could see... It wasn't what it seemed. There were some cracks in there. And the idea is, when we're presented in the light of the sun, should I say S-O-N, <laughs> it ought to be the real thing. Not a fraud, not a fake, not an actor, but the real deal. God wants reality. He don't want us to be like the Pharisees who are hypocrites. He wants us to be real. Sincerity and truth. Uh, pure when viewed in the sunlight, truth both in what we feed upon and how we live. So, again, it's a good question to ask. How are we doing? Are we feeding on Christ? Uh, what is our devotional life like? Are we looking for Christ? Uh, do we have an appetite for Him as we read the Scriptures? Are we taking seriously leaven removal? Uh, could we say that our life is honoring the feast of unleavened bread? And um, the interesting thing is that... Um, uh, we've talked about the, the Passover and uh, unleavened bread and how these two things go together. But um, uh, <clears throat> one of the questions that is always raised uh, 
And that is this. If you say, and I do say, that leaven is always evil in the scripture. It's always symbolic of evil. So then why, when we have communion, do we have leavened bread in most assemblies? Should we not use unleavened bread? That's the question at the Lord's Supper. So, I want to give you an answer. And um, uh, my conviction on this is that I don't think it's a, a big issue. And let me tell you why. L- look at, again at 1 Corinthians 5. Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5, in Greek, there are two different words for unleavened bread and regular bread. Okay? They're, they're clearly there in the Greek language and they're available to the Apostle Paul. And actually in 1 Corinthians, he actually uses both words. But in 1 Corinthians 5, he uses the term unleavened bread in verse 8, where he says, Let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the Greek word is available to him and he's actually used it. So if God intended us to have unleavened bread at the Lord's Supper, you would think then that when he comes to 1 Corinthians 11, where he is revealing the teaching about the importance of doing this in remembrance of me, he would deliberately use the word that is available for unleavened bread if he intended us to use it. Would you not think? So, what does he use? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23... He says, uh, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, common loaf. He doesn't use the technical term. He could. He's already used it once in the epistle. If this is really a big deal, Paul, come on, just make it clear to us. Use it. But he doesn't. Why not? Look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, where the the Passover festival of the Lord with his disciples, where they were keeping the Passover. And let me say this, there's absolutely no question in Luke 22 that they used unleavened bread in Luke 22 because it was the Passover. In fact, he uses the word in the passage. Verse 1, he says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. But in verse 7, it says, this Then came the day of unleavened bread. He uses it again, when the Passover must be killed. And then you get to verse 19, where again you would think it would be natural to use it again. It says, And he took bread and gave to them, uh, break it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body. And guess what he uses? Ordinary word for loaf. Now again, all I'm saying is, if it's God's intent that we do this, here are glorious opportunities to seal the deal. Where he's actually used the technical term in the very passage, and he doesn't do it. Let me give you a reason why I think it's not a big deal. Now again, other good godly brethren would disagree with me, and that's okay. And to me, it's not an issue of fellowship. Uh, I've been in assemblies that use leavened bread, and I've been in assemblies that use unleavened bread, and it hasn't made any difference to me. But in 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 16 and 17, and again, 
1 Corinthians 10, some say, well, he's not really speaking about the Lord's Supper here. He's talking about the whole kind of idea of fellowship with God. But I think he's including in that the Lord's Supper. And so he says in verse 6, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Is it what he's saying here that when we remember the Lord, that loaf represents more than just the Lord? It represents him, but it also represents the church. We being many are one loaf. Because we all take from it, don't we? In other words, we're all partakers of Christ and we're all part of his body. And so, because the loaf speaks not just of Christ, but also an expression of our unity and a picture of the church, and just like the one cup as well is a picture there too, that leads to another question. Should we have a single cup? I'll leave that for another day. Um, but then the final thing that I would say, so again, I, I would say that because it's, it's a twofold picture, um, the final thing would be this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26 tells us that we, when we come together, um, we're remembering the Lord in his death. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Now look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. We're remembering the Lord in his death, and what are we remembering about him? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him remembering the Christ in his death and in his death he that knew no sin was made to be sin for us now let me just say this since 1989 I've broken bread as far as I know almost every Lord's Day since 89 and I would say 95% of the assemblies I've broken bread in have used a bread just ordinary loaf that is leavened never once have I ever been caused to think any less of the person of Christ or even the suggestion that he was sinful has never entered my mind so to me it's not a in fact could I say this when we were in new tribes and we were in the Philippines um, the tribe we were in Kankanai tribe up in the mountains of Luzon they didn't have bread and they didn't have wine and we broke bread using sweet potato and coke but we had a sweet remembrance of the Lord now they just didn't have it and, and again we were just visiting it wasn't our um, influence or whatsoever uh, but to me um, uh, leaven in the scriptures uh, is a symbol of evil but when it comes to remembering the Lord to me it's not uh, if the Lord intended us to practice that my question is when Paul and Luke had opportunity to do it why did they just put common loaf because those matzos are not readily available everywhere but bread is it's a staple pretty much so anyway that's just my thought you can disagree with me if you want it's not an issue of fellowship I hope we can still be friends over those kind of issues okay I want to just make a start on the feast of first fruits for a moment now so let's go back um, to uh, Luke's gospel I'm sorry to um, uh, let's go back to Leviticus and chapter 23 Leviticus 23 
And we're going to break in in verse 9 now and read down to 14. And so this is the third festival. So we've seen Passover. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed to us. Picture of redemption. We've looked at the unleavened bread. Uh, if you like, Christ who is our life. Feeding on him. Uh, sanctification. Christ, our Passover. Christ who is our life. Sanctification. Now, we want to look at first fruits. And so we begin reading in verse 9. It says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, uh, Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them, When you come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meal offering thereof shall be two tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for the sweet savor. The drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of a hin. You shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Now, again, in terms of the timing of this festival, it's actually still connected to the other two previous feasts. So if you, again, look at this picture here, and you've got the dates, uh, the Passover, 14th day of the first month, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the 15th to the 21st day of the first month, and then you've got the 17th day of the first month is the Feast of um, First Fruits. So during the seven-day Festival of Unleavened Bread, this festival of first fruits happens. So, in a sense, this week a lot of things are happening. There's really three festivals that are going on. Passover initiates it, you go into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but in the midst of that feast, um, on the morning after the Sabbath of that week, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of First Fruits, sorry. Now, something else about this the, the first two festivals we looked at could actually be done in Egypt and in the wilderness. Right? You could keep the Passover in Egypt. In fact, they did. The first Passover was held in Egypt. They could keep it during their wilderness wanderings. They could keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in their wilderness wanderings. But this festival, because it's a harvest festival had to be in the land of promise because they weren't going to get much of a harvest in the wilderness, right? They weren't planting, they weren't sowing. So they weren't going to get a barley harvest. And so he says to them in verse 10, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheep of the first fruits of your harvest to the Lord. So it had to take place when they were in the land, it was taken, took place on the morning after the Sabbath, i.e. the morning after the Sabbath would be the first day of the week, so it would be the equivalent to Sunday morning, right? It would take place on Sunday morning during the Passover week. So it's actually the first Sunday after Passover, during Passover week, they would have this Feast of first fruits. <coughs> also, 
So, so yeah, the first Sunday immediately after the Passover, the first day of the week. And the feast had a twofold significance. We're going to look at both aspects. First of all, it was, a, a, you might say, a lesson in stewardship. They're coming into a land, a, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they're going to experience their first crop of the first harvest. But before they could eat anything, the first and best had to be given to God. So it's teaching a lesson, right? God should get the first portion and the best. Then after they'd given to God that which belonged to him, they could enjoy the rest. And so what we would say very clearly is this. Uh, it, it really is teaching us that God expects the first and the best from us. Secondly, it's a type of the resurrection of Christ. And we might say it's a lesson in security. Because you'll notice it's about acceptance. Verse 11, he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. And so we're going to see that in a sense Christ in resurrection is the basis of our acceptance. We're going to look at that. We'll, we'll explain it more. I'm just kind of laying the foundation of what we're going to be looking at in this section. So let's begin with this lesson in stewardship. Uh, what the feast meant to the Israelite. And it's amazing really how far they've come in a short space of time. They were once slaves in Egypt. And now they've become landowners. That's a pretty dramatic thing, right? To, to go from being slaves under the lash of the Egyptians and now God has given them this land flowing with milk and honey. And so now they've got this new prosperity uh, for the first time and they're about to enjoy the fruits of it. This first harvest of the year, the barley harvest, and they're about to, in a sense, taste the bounty of it. But in the midst of their prosperity, the claims of God were to be recognized first of all. Again, look at verse 14. He says, You shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering to your God. It'll be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So this first harvest, before they could even get a taste, God got his, got his portion first. Great principle, right? God first. Isn't that a good idea? Give God the first place? Yeah, we're going to see that again in the New Testament too. But the first and best had to be given to God. By the way, this idea of going from slaves to landowners, I'm going to be careful how I say this, but I do believe that the gospel brings prosperity, but I don't believe in a prosperity gospel. Let me explain myself before I get into trouble. But a man gets saved, and I could think of Exhibit A, who used to spend all his money on drink and tobacco and all these things, and he gets saved, and all of a sudden, for the first time ever, he doesn't have to pay for joy. He's got it in his heart, right? And so, all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, he's got a few shekels in his pocket, and, and he learns from the word of God how to be a good steward. And I think if you really follow the Christian, I'm not saying that you know, you're going to drive around in a Cadillac and all this kind of, don't get me, misunderstand me please. But there is a prosperity because the world spends a fortune to try and get happy, doesn't it? 
Sin is costly. The prodigal son, he spent a fortune, didn't he? Why? Trying to fulfill the emptiness in his life. That's why. But in Christ, if you really get the real thing, you don't need all that junk. You have him. And so in a sense, there's a sense that you do prosper. But again, we're not saying, you know, if you, if you uh, give us a donation of $1,000 tonight, the Lord's going to give you 100000 back. We're not, okay, well, you understand what I'm saying. But, but there is, there's a thing that the Lord brings in, a blessing to our lives in terms of stewardship and all the rest of it. And of course, we recognize some people suffered and lost everything. We, we take that into account. But generally, under normal circumstances, a Christian life is a cheaper life, isn't it? Isn't it a cheaper life? I think it is. Um, I, I'm just glad I don't do those things anymore. They cost a lot of money back then, back in 1981. What would it be now? Frightening. Well, <clears throat> this lesson is all that they had was given to them by God. And in fact, he says all the way through the Bible uh, concerning the land of Israel, he says, this is my land. <laughs> so in a sense, he gave it to them, but it was his. So in, everything is held in trust from God. Uh, we recognize the principle of divine ownership of everything. Let me give you some examples. Look at Psalm 24, for instance. Uh, Want to just see this, um, that in a, in a very real sense, everything belongs to God. And uh, it's good for us to get this in our minds. Psalm 24, verse 1. Very beautiful verse, and uh, one I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, but emphasizing that it, it's all His. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. What is that telling us? It's telling us the divine ownership of everything, right? It's all His. So anything you have, it's on loan. It actually belongs to Him. Now, scripture would concur with that, wouldn't it? First Timothy chapter 6, New Testament, verse 7. And it has kind of your biography in a sense. And it's a very fascinating biography. Because it tells us something about ourselves. First Timothy. Chapter 6 and verse 7. It says, For we brought nothing into this world. Right? You didn't come in with anything. And guess what? It says, And it's certain we can carry nothing out. You will not have a U-Haul trailer on the back of your hearse. When my father passed away, I'm an only child, and so I had to go over to England to sort out my father's affairs because when he left, he took nothing with him. And it took us three months to go through a four-bedroom house, two packed sheds, and a packed garage of a lifetime of accumulated junk. And that was a great lesson for us because we thought, are we going to leave our kids with a heap of junk to salt through. And it, it tell you what, it's a, it's a lot of work doing that. In fact, um, some of the stuff we took to the local dump, um, and um, they, they got to know us on first name terms because we were making so many trips there. And I thought, I don't want my kids. When we moved house last time, we put everything in the garage, and we said it has to justify its existence before it crosses the threshold. If not, it's going to the dump or the charity shop. That's a good way to be because um, it's amazing. It clutters your life so much. First Corinthians, uh, sorry, First Chronicles 29, 
Again, just the, the divine ownership of everything. We come in without anything. We're leaving without anything. And uh, everything we have in between is on loan from God. Uh, it's all from him. First Chronicles 29, verse 14. He says, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. And so, again, everything's coming from you, and, and uh, uh, if we're giving anything to you, it came from you. And, and then, of course, Malachi 3.10 says, uh, will a man rob God? And robbing God is keeping for ourselves that which really belongs to God. That's a serious thing, isn't it? And so we've got to think through these things. Um, you know, sometimes we say, well, you know, I worked hard all week, and I earned it. It's mine. Well, who gave you the the breath to breathe to do the working this week God did amen who gave you the smarts to be able to do your job God right so in a, even when you say I've worked for it no it, everything you got you got because of the grace of God everything and so we can't say I've earned it it's mine and, and so there's this sense that we're now stewards uh, just like the children of Israel, they're given this land, but they've got to acknowledge God in the process. Before they can eat anything, they give the first to God. Now look at 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. And it's really interesting. We were down, some of us, at Dave Bosworth's this morning, and we, I had a, a kind of some thoughts to share, but <laughs> questions came up, and we ended up not speaking about it all. And we ended up speaking about the issue of giving and the whole responsibility of giving. And uh, 1 Corinthians 16 uh, clearly says in verse 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, on the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And I think there's a great principle there, isn't there? On the first day of the week, being able to look back over the week that has gone by and asking ourselves the question, to what degree has God prospered me this past week? And then based on how much he's prospered me, and by the way, how do you begin to calculate that? <laughs> That's a big issue, isn't it? I mean, he's blessed me with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He's daily loads me down with benefits. I, mean, I could go on and on. But on the basis of his goodness to me, then I am to lay in store for what I want to give back to him. And the idea is this, the first day of the week, just like the, the Israelite as he comes into the land, the first and best of the, the harvest goes to God. And sometimes I think we miss a blessing because we just do these things without thinking. You know, we decide what we're going to give, we write it out, and we don't think through, has God, has God blessed you even more this week? Did you get something unexpected that you weren't anticipating? Are you working through that process? Are you thinking through, uh, how should I give this week? Are you praying about it? My wife and I, we often say this, we, um, what we do is we, we pray about giving, and who the Lord would have us to give to, we give to the assembly, but over and above that, we give to the Lord's servants. And so we both pray about during the week who we're going to give to. And invariably, we come up with the same person. I mean, it's different people all the time. But it's so exciting because it's like the Lord is showing you, this is who needs support. This month. You send some money to them. And what a thrill it is. Giving takes on a whole different dimension when you take it seriously like that. And so certainly... 
as stewardship, uh, and of course, as stewards, we'll give an account. In fact, the Word of God says that, that if we're faithful with the, the, uh, the, the, what they call the unrighteous mammon, with money, he'll commit to us true riches. But if we're unfaithful in the financial end of things, why would he commit to us true riches? We're not good stewards. Uh, in a sense, our stewardship financially... Is, is really a test of how we're going to be good stewards spiritually. And if we're not good financially, we're not going to be good spiritually. And so it really is important to do that. And certainly here, uh, we need to recognize these things. Do we recognize God's ownership over all our possessions? Are we willing to give the first and best to God? And by the way, not just our money, but our time and our talents. Let's not be guilty of robbing God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he says, and all these things shall be added unto you. It was put me first. Put me to the test. God tells us to do that. And so we need to make sure we put him to the test and we do that. And it's really interesting. I've often told this story, but I think it's so fascinating. I heard Rex Trogdon say one time when they were in the Congo, the people didn't have money. And so they would give a percentage of their crops, whatever they were growing. And they would have a basket at the front of the building of the church. And they would come and they would put in the basket, you know, whatever they papaya or whatever they grew, I don't know, whatever they did in the Congo, I have no idea. But there was one guy who was really poor and he had nothing to put in, so he walked up to the front of the building and he stood in the basket. He said, God, I don't have anything to give you but myself. But that's a great place to start, isn't it? You see, if you stand in the basket and you've got a wallet in your back pocket, he's got the wallet too. He's got you. And of course, we have to start there first giving ourselves to the Lord. And, uh, you know, I had a friend, he, he worked in, uh, in the city mission in my hometown, and uh, quite an outspoken guy, but people used to come and they'd bring old clothes because they used to work with the street people and the tramps, and they'd bring all this kind of clothing and everything. And, and my friend Leslie used to always say to them, uh, thanks for giving your cast-offs, how about giving your life? He wasn't very popular. <laughs> but that's a challenge, isn't it? How about giving your life? Okay, so... This is a good place to stop before we and pause because everybody needs to kind of um, break and we want to look at the second aspect, the lesson in stewardship and the lesson in security, the resurrection of Christ. So let's just pray and then we'll take a stretch break. Father, we again thank you for the practicality of your word. We pray we'd be serious about leaven removal. We pray we'd be good stewards. We want to be those that are faithful in material things and knowing full well that if we're faithful in those things that you will commit to us the true riches. And so we pray for each of us to examine our hearts, even this coming first day of the week, that we would not just do anything by routine or rote, but we would not be hypocritical, but we'd just be real in your presence, and we'd look back over this past week and ask ourselves the question, just how much has God prospered me this week? And that we give uh, commensurate to how you've prospered us. We'll give you the glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.